Amen. All right, thanks, AJ. Uh, good morning. You all right? You good? All right, we're getting into it today. It's Revelation chapter 6. So go ahead, grab your Bibles if you got them. Revelation chapter 6, the very last book of your Bible. If you want to use one of the black Bibles in the pew in front of you, go ahead and grab that. Find the very last book. Turn all the way to your right. And then turn back to the first book of your New Testament. We're going to be in two places today as we get going. Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. Uh, let, me, let me say one thing on uh, what you just heard from AJ and from Kenny on production teams and the CERB teams that were listed there behind me. Uh, in many ways, as we are coming out of the COVID season and we're coming back now together in our gatherings, a lot of stuff has been shut down for us as a church, um, specifically related to Sunday mornings. You know, so we've, we've launched back into Sunday morning services. We've launched back into uh, greeting and parking and uh, kids ministries happen today, that kind of once a month rhythm with middle school and kids. Uh, and, and in many ways, uh, where you may have served in the past now has an empty spot. Uh, because for us to come back as a church in a full scope in a lot of these areas, not to mention production, which is already mentioned, uh, kids, teaching on Sunday mornings, the equipped classes we want to get rolling back up again, there are a lot of places for us as a team to come back together and to serve. So uh, as you're looking at these announcements each week and we start focusing on the areas where you can serve in the body, we need you. We need you to get back in the game and to be a part of what God's doing here so that we can build up the next generation, we can make disciples, and we can do a lot of that stuff that's going on. So be looking out and uh, see where your spot is to serve. Otherwise, I'll have AJ's uh, come after you. So that's his role. I'm sorry. That's, that's his job is, is to be the heavy on staff. So, uh, Revelation 6, you there? We have seen, Revelation, here's where we've been. Revelation chapter 1 starts as John gets the commission to write. And he gets the commission to write from Jesus who said, write now the things that are, the things that you have seen, and the things that will take place after these things. So we saw the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. We saw the church age in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then we spent two whole weeks looking at a prelude, as it were, to everything that's going to follow between chapter 6 and chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. Now, here is where the Lamb begins to unfold the scroll of all the divine plans and purposes of God to bring to bear the judgment on earth and to purge this creation of sin until we get to Revelation 22, uh, when he behold, Revelation 22 says, I am making all things what? New. That, that is uh, what we're all looking forward to. So that's where we've been. Revelation chapter 6 today, we call this message birth pains. Uh, and we're going to see where you get that term. You get that term from Matthew 24. So we're going to start in Matthew 24 and then land in Revelation chapter 6, and we'll watch how these two passages work together. Uh, would you agree that as you live life in this earth, as you try to discern what it means to walk and to follow Jesus in the variety of situations and circumstances that you have, that a lot of times you don't see things in your life as the way they ought to be. You ever feel that? That there, there feels like in life, as we journey through life, that we have the truth of God's word and we see what Jesus has done in his perfect life, his death, burial, and resurrection, but there seems to be in my life things that don't line up, that I see how things ought to be and then I see how things are and I go, boy, there seems to be a distinction in my life or a deviation between what ought to be and what is. You ever feel that? 
And then we live these lives as Christians where we're trying to understand, as Colossians says, try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You ever feel like you have no idea what to do in a situation? I have no idea what to do in this situation with my family or with my parenting or with my kids or with my job or with my fill in the blank, dot, dot, dot. And uh, we all face that, don't we? We all face life where, uh, gosh, God, it seems like you say this and this is how it ought to be, but it isn't that way. God, how do I navigate this situation and this circumstance? And the issue for us as Christians is not so much that life isn't the way it ought to be. One day, life will be the way it ought to be. Amen? One day that uh, we will have life totally aligned because of who Jesus is and what he's able to accomplish as we look forward. But the key for you and I, the key as we go through these situations in life where there's a deviation and there's a difference between what I feel there ought to be and what is, the real question is how do you navigate that? How, what do you do in those situations? And by the end of our text here today, I want to give you sort of three big ways that we do that in life that you will have a temptation to live life a certain way. And I think it's, it's shown to us here in this text of Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. So that's what I want us to be thinking about. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in here to Matthew 24, land in Revelation chapter 6, and uh, we'll have a lot of fun. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your grace to us here this morning. We pray that we would be people who receive the word of God that is at work in us as believers. So Father, for those who walk in this morning and uh, are uncertain or despairing or discouraged over the situations and circumstances of their lives, I pray that you would give them great strength and a great reminder here this morning of your tender love and care for them. That you would build us up in your word. That you would shape us as men and women who long for your return that we would be men and women who, who know what it means to follow the Lord and to walk with him and to discern the things that are pleasing to you. Would you give, grant us the grace to order our lives appropriately? Would we repent where we need to repent, where we need to be strengthened? We pray that your uh, word would exhort us. Where we're discouraged, we pray that we would leave this morning with courage. So, Father, for these few minutes as we gather, we pray that your word would come alive in our hearts, that we would see you and know you in deeper ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Matthew 24 is where we're going to start. Y'all there? You find it'll be on the screen here uh, behind me. Uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 are all in the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give you a picture uh, from different perspectives, and the, they align uh, and give you a, uh, a same view of who Jesus is and what, he, uh, what he's done. And his teaching, as he gets to the end of his time on earth, he gathers his disciples around him in three different places, as I said, Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24, and he begins to talk to them about the end of the age. And uh, they all have little nuances and differences in the ways that Jesus communicates to us about these things. But Matthew 24 is where we're going to spend our time here this morning, and we'll, we'll see in Matthew 24 what Jesus talks about when the end is near, all right? That's what Matthew 24 is about. Let's take a look here. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Uh, I believe Luke says that they, they draw his attention to all the beautiful things about the temple, how it's covered in gold and jewels and precious stones, and it's sort of the centerpiece of the Jewish religious life, is life in the temple. It's where they'd hear the teaching of God's word, it's where they would sacrifice, it was really the center of the Jewish nation as they related to God. And the disciples, as they walk with Christ, are are looking at this building, really the centerpiece of their religious life and worship, and they're, they're calling attention to its beauty and to its glory. Matthew 24, verse 2. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this is one of Jesus' prophetic uh, words here as he looks forward to something that happens in A.D. 70 after he's crucified, dead, buried, raised again and the gospel begins to be preached. In A.D. 70, the Romans come in and they destroy the temple. They raise it to the ground. Uh, And the Romans, a guy named Titus Vespasian comes in and he destroys the the center of Jewish religious life. And he tears it all to the ground. You can go today to Rome and see the uh, the, the arch of Titus that is a commemoration of this day and this time when the Romans sacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And Jesus is looking at this centerpiece and saying there's not one stone that's going to be left upon one another. And watch what the disciples say in verse 3. So he goes and he sits on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what you're going to see Jesus give to the disciples here is a sequence of events. He's going to tell you, here are the things that are going to happen before my return. That for us in our Bibles is Revelation chapter 20. Here's what Jesus says is going to lead up to that time of his return. Look at verse 4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, the purpose of Jesus giving a future view and future truths for you to order your life by, the study of eschatology, the eschaton are the last things. The Bible contains not only things that have been done in the past, but it contains prophetic literature about things that we look forward to in the future, and that the Christian is meant to take their life and to balance their life between the two poles of God's word, that we have the pole of God's word of what Jesus has done in the past and God's, the way God has acted with his people throughout time, and we have the promises of the future. And we live as people, as we started with, in between times, don't we? There are certain truths that we base our life and our decisions and the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he's done that happened 2,000 years ago, but there are also things that Jesus says have yet to happen So for a Christian, as they read their Bible and look at the prophetic literature, look at eschatology and the study of eschatology, the study of eschatology and the last things is meant to teach you to live a certain way. And it's verse 4. It's that you would not be led astray. Astray is the word P-L-A-N-A-O. It's the word we get for planet. You know what a planet does? A planet wanders. That's the idea. This word is used in uh, Paul's letter to Titus, where he talks about that you were once disobedient, led astray. So that the study of the future things and of the last things of our age, you know, in Revelation chapter 6 and all the way to Revelation chapter 20, you're looking at the last seven years of human history. And the reason this content is given is that you and I would not live lives where we are deceived. 
the Christian is meant to be able to discern the, the times and the seasons, to be able to look at life through the lens of God's word and live lives of wisdom. So Jesus is about to give them the next steps of the things that will happen prophetically, and he does it in such a way that we wouldn't be deceived. Now, is there a lot of talk about the future and the end times that feels really foolish and really crazy out there? And Jesus says, listen, the words that I'm about to give you are meant for you not to be deceived, not to be led astray, not to be a fool, but to be wise. Look at what he says in verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many, what? They'll deceive many. They'll lead many astray. Uh, You can, I didn't know this. There's a Wikipedia page that has listed people from the 19th and 20th century, and maybe even earlier, who have claimed to be Christ. Do you know that? Remember, ever heard of David Koresh? Al, you know David Koresh. I, see, you have, maybe if you haven't met around, you don't know, you don't remember David Koresh. David Koresh claimed to be God. There's a Korean guy named Sun Myung Moon who claims to be the reincarnated Christ. There was a guy named Marshall Applewhite. Marshall Applewhite, I think I got that name right. Marshall? Marshall Applewhite, he believed that there was a spaceship hiding behind the Hale-Bopp comet that was coming to take his, him and his people to heaven. So they committed mass suicide. Jesus says, uh, this lines up with uh, John in John's epistle in 1 John. 1 John 2 says this, children, is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Jesus said, don't be deceived. There will be people throughout the ages and throughout time who will claim to be me, and they will lead many astray. So it's important that we pay attention to Jesus' words here to be able to understand our times correctly. Now, watch what Jesus says is going to follow here. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. You see the two A words that Jesus says his words will help us with? One is that we're not led what? astray. The other in verse 6 is you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. See that you are not alarmed. This word is a rare one, this, and it, ha- uh, it occurs in another place in your Bible. I'll read to you. This is from 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians captures this idea. We've looked at this before earlier in our, our study of Revelation, but 2 Thessalonians 2 says this. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul's concern in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is a church that thinks they've missed God coming back for them. And Jesus tells us here, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You're going to hear things and the culture get bad. You're going to hear of conflicts. And see that you are not alarmed. Now, the remainder of the verse says this. This is great. This is a a phrase that's used three different times in the book of Revelation. For this must take place. Remember that? Remember Revelation 1? Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. 
when John goes to heaven in Revelation chapter 4. Jesus says to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Revelation chapter 22, the beginning and the end of the book, Revelation 22, says these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Are, are we encouraged that we know who holds the end of history? Does that encourage you to know that the lamb that was slain is the one who has the authority and is worthy to open the seals and to bring to fulfillment all of the plans and purposes of God? That's an encouragement, isn't it? So Jesus is giving you a similar perspective here in Matthew 24. The unsettling of life on this planet must take place. Four, look at verse seven. Nation will rise against nation. That's ethnos against ethnos ethnicities will war against one another. Not only that, kingdoms against kingdoms, that there will be political conflict that will happen, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, we've had six kids. Uh, some of our kids were induced, some were not, uh, and that call that you get from your wife when the birth pains are happening is a serious call. Because by that point, you have the go bag packed. You know, it's in the go bag, all the stuff that you're going to need for the hospital. You make sure you have your charger and your laptop and your camera and all the things that are going to go down. All you need that for life in the hospital for multiple days. Well, what's happening in that moment when we get the call that one of our children is on the way is that the birth pangs start, that the contractions start. And contractions don't go backwards. They go forwards. Amen, ladies? that they go forward with consistency. And you can watch them, as my wife is hooked up, when we had our kids, you watch uh, the musculature of her belly tense up and relax. And tense up and relax. And they, get how, they go faster and they get stronger until the baby is here. And Jesus says this is the beginning of birth pains. We're not going backwards, we're going forward. And the beginning of birth pains is Revelation chapter 6. So turn now to Revelation chapter 6. We've had uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, which turns our minds and hearts to worship. Okay? And those chapters are there for a very particular purpose, that if you are just reading Revelation without an eye toward worship on the Lamb and worship of the one who is seated on the throne, you're, you're uh, reading it out of balance, right? The purpose of Revelation is to point our hearts and minds to the one who holds the future. That's the whole purpose of the book, is that you would gain a greater appreciation and understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what now he is about to do. And that's Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 contains probably the most uh, visual and memorable descriptions of the birth pangs. They are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War, famine, plague, and death. Uh, and we'll see. you got four different horses that will be represented. The four different horsemen go out from the throne after, at the uh, direction of the four living creatures who are around the throne of God. So all of that is about uh, here what you're going to see. Uh, and here's what I want you to see in Revelation chapter 6. Um, Revelation chapter 6 is going to be, uh, as the Lamb opens the scroll, 
there's going to be a divine unsettling of what Jesus has said here in, in uh, what did I say? Matthew 24. There's going to be a removal of the restraint and the common grace of God. When you read about wrath in the scriptures, broadly speaking, uh, there are moments of wrath where God's anger breaks out against uh, sinners. Uh, you can think about, there's a, there's a story in the book of Numbers about a man named Korah, and it's called Korah's Rebellion. And when you see the judgment passages throughout the scripture, you're always asking a question. Why is this judgment here, and what does it tell me about what God thinks? The judgment upon Korah happens uh, when they refuse to follow God's designated leader. And God has designated leadership to fall and happen through his designated leader, Moses. And Korah and his people rebel against Moses, and Moses says to the people, if something altogether new happens to Korah, and the earth swallows him up, then you will know that this judgment is from God. But if they die like any other people, then God has not sent me and God has not called me. And what happens immediately afterward, always a sure sign that God is displeased when the earth opens its mouth and eats all the people. That's a bad day. When you get to the New Testament, you go, gosh, Steve, that's an Old Testament idea. God doesn't like that in the New Testament. You get to the New Testament, you see the birthing of the church in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and make it look like they're incredibly generous people. And they lay money at the apostles' feet because that's what they were doing in that time. And they said, I want some of this praise and some of this glory for myself. And they don't tell the apostles that they sold the land for 10 grand uh, they tell the apostles they sold the land for five grand, and they only bring five and put it in front of the apostles' feet. And Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias drops dead, and then his wife drops dead, and the whole church stands in fear. Why? Because God is making it clear that he does not share his glory and his worship with anyone else. So there's significant moments in the life of the people of God. These judgments in Revelation chapter 6 now begin to unsettle uh, not just the people of God, not just the community of God, because the church is now moved out. Now it begins to unsettle the world. These are, um, well, you'll see as we get into them. So let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come that what you'll have throughout Revelation here is these living creatures begin to release the judgments. The lamb opens the seal, the living creatures have the authority to call forth one of these horsemen. You're gonna have four different horsemen, four different colors, but the idea of horsemen, horsemen in John's day were the military machines. They were the war conquerors. That when there were many chariots and many horses, you had a military power that was happening in the life uh, of John's culture and John's day. So you're going to see here uh, these living creatures call forth these horsemen. They're probably characteristic of world forces and powers at this time, and I'll, I'll explain that here as we go. But look at verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Um, white. Let's talk about that just for a second. White, uh, throughout your Bible, is typically used to refer to garments. Uh, the righteous deeds of the saints are said to be clothed in white linen. 
The church that follows Christ as he comes back in Revelation chapter 20 is clothed in white linen. Uh, Angels are clothed in white. Jesus was clothed in white at his transfiguration. So white and the idea of purity is uh, consistent throughout the book of Revelation. And this rider, as he comes forth on a white horse, has a bow. Now, as this rider comes forth, you may have a cross-reference in your Bible that says Revelation 19. You have a cross-reference there that says Revelation 19? The cross-reference to Revelation 19 is that some commentators get split on this. Some of them uh, interpret this as being Jesus going forth. Uh, But the images in Revelation 19 and here in Revelation 6 are different images. Jesus is clothed in white like the white horse is. But Jesus has a sword. This rider has a bow. This rider is given uh, a crown that's called a Stephanos, which is a victor's crown. It's a crown that was given Uh, Paul talks about it, that we uh, athletes compete in the game and receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. It's a victor's crown of like if you were to compete in the games, you would get this, a Stephanos, which is a crown of victory. Jesus doesn't wear a Stephanos, he wears a diadem. A diadem is a royal crown. So his authority comes from his person, not his conquest, which is what we've already seen in Revelation chapter 5, right? Why was the lamb worthy? Because he was slain. Right? Because he laid his life down in faithfulness to the purposes of God. This rider has a bow. A bow is a picture of military might and conquest. And uh, this rider, if you notice, has no arrows in the bow. But it's given to him to conquer, to go forth and to rule. Some think this may be uh, the Antichrist. That when the Antichrist comes, he conquers. And as we look at Revelation chapter 6 all the way to 19, 20, 21, and 22, what you have here is the last seven years of human history. And this Antichrist will come forth, and he won't conquer through um, military might initially. What he'll conquer through is through diplomacy. Yet one commentator said this, the reason this horse is white is that when men go to war, they always fight for what they believe is righteous reasons. So that there's a picture here of this individual who goes forth with authority from the throne of God. He gives, he goes forward, it was given to him, and he uh, came out conquering and to conquer, which is a term in the book of Revelation that is used pretty consistently. It's used in every letter to every church about the promise of the one who conquers. It's used in Revelation chapter 5 of the lamb who conquered. The next time you see it used outside of this context is when the, um, when the dragon and the beast make war and it was given to them to conquer the saints, to make war with them and to conquer them. So what I think is happening here is, is you have a division in the book of Revelation where the opening of the seals is a picture of a white horse, a, a rider on a white horse, and you have the end of the book where there's a rider on a white horse. See, the book of Revelation, if nothing else, as the judgments are poured out upon the earth, it is forcing you to make a decision. There are sheep and goats. There are those sealed with the seal of the lamb and the seal of the beast. There is no Switzerland in this conflict. You with me? There's nobody who says, we're going to sit this one out. We'll wait to see whether the lamb does it or the dragon wins, and then we'll join sides when it's over. 
As the judgments are poured out upon the planet, it is forcing the individuals on this planet to make a decision. Will I follow the dragon or will I follow the lamb? Will I be like a sheep or will I be like the goats? And the idea here is that there are two conflicts. By the end of this book, it will say that the kingdoms of this world have begun the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. That there is a divine conflict that is playing out upon our planet right now. There is a divine conflict that will play out in the book of Revelation between the kingdoms that will follow the Christ and the kingdoms that will not. So right from the beginning, you know that you are going to have conflict. Remember when Jesus says that the, uh, uh, you've got to bind the strong man, go into his house, plunder his possessions, and bring people out? Remember how he talks about the church? The, uh, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus understands that there's this dichotomy on the planet. Those who will follow and love and serve Christ and those who will not. That's the distinction on our planet. And it's heightened here in Revelation chapter 6 because it lets you know that there is a war. That there is a conflict. When Paul talks about discipleship in 2 Timothy 2, he uses uh, metaphors of the athlete, the farmer, and the soldier. And he talks about living a life of discipleship, living a life that you understand under whose authority that you work and live and love and serve. And right from the beginning of the opening of the seals, you now have the release of God to expose and to reveal the one who will ultimately lead all of the earth into rebellion against the Lamb. I think personally that in every culture and in every season, that Satan and the demons are priming an individual who will step into the role of Antichrist. And it's only the grace of God that frustrates. Go and read the Wikipedia page that we just mentioned and watch how these individuals who claim to be Jesus Christ and claim to desire all of the authority and worship that is due Jesus Christ get frustrated. We had to go into David Koresh and his compound, knock it down with a tank and get all the people out, right? And we all laugh at that, but at a certain point, it's revealing the truth of 1 John 2 that many antichrists have come, that they want the power and authority that is due Jesus Christ, but they don't want the morality. What happens to every single individual who thinks he's Jesus? Something goes sideways, somebody accuses him of something, and you discover that his life is not as pure as Jesus Christ, don't you? But what happens? He wants all the power, the authority, and the rights of rule and worship, but he doesn't want the morality. So this horseman goes forth. Look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. You see how particular this is? By the end of Revelation chapter 6, you're going to have the first mention of the wrath of God and, his, and the Lamb. That the wrath of God is being poured out. But seals are open sequentially. You don't just have the lamb go, rip, get this scroll open. The lamb is very particular, very precise. He's surgical in the application of the things that are about to happen as the horsemen go forth. This isn't God flying off the handle. This is precise and purpose and design. Verse four, out came another horse, bright red. The only other mention of red in this book is the red dragon in the image, uh, in the vision of John and the woman that has the crown of 12 stars later on in the book. 
This horse is bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. The first seal is opened, and you have political unrest, kingdom against kingdom. Here in Revelation 6, verse 4, this rider goes forth, and he's allowed to remove peace from the earth, nation against nation. And watch what it says. He's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Have we seen that word slay before in this book? We saw it back in Revelation chapter 5, that the, that the lamb was standing as if slain. It's a strong word. I mentioned this last week, but it's taken from 1 John chapter 3 that talks about Cain murdering Abel. That now not only is there a divine uh, removal of the restraint upon political structures, but now there begins to be a divine removal of restraint from social structures. That men are now permitted to, this writer now is permitted to pull his hand back from the normal social interactions that happen among humans. And now they're permitted to slay one another. That now, we see this in flashes in our culture, don't we? That there's flashes of road rage. There's flashes of people doing things that are uh, ungodly and crazy in the news. And we all stand back and go, wow, that person just went off the chain. He's just crazy. But Revelation chapter 6 here shows you that there's a common grace of God that uh, lays upon sinful humanity. And that restrains the crazy anger in the hearts and minds of humans. But now in the second seal, it begins to be removed. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. So the first rider is permitted to conquer, to dominate, to wage war, and to move into a position of political control. The second rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that the social conventions that characterize our relationships of peace and well-being and, and uh, the norms of social interaction that happen in a culture now begin to be unsettled. The third one aims at economics. This rider goes forth with a scale. Now, Look at what verse uh, 6 says. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, probably the voice from the throne, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, this may make no sense to you whatsoever. Did anybody during the pandemic take up making bread? One. My wife got into, she can make some bread. And she got into bread like on another level. She went after making some bread. We did sourdough. We did sourdough uh, cinnamon raisin bread. <sighs> Lord. I said, moss gluten for me. Uh, I don't even know if sourdough has gluten. I could be totally, you may be a bread pro and be like, sourdough does not have gluten, Steve. Uh, so I said, I was talking to her. I said, well, a quart of wheat for a denarius. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that's a lot or not. I know two pints, two cups in a pint, two pints in a quart. I got to that point. I said, I need an illustration. 
This doesn't make sense to me. Commentators think that these are um, exorb this is an exorbitant amount of um, prices and economic devastation. Uh, so I called my wife and I said, wife, I call her Suzanne for the purpose. <laughs> wife. I said, Suzanne, how much flour do you need to bake bread? And she said, I use, if I'm making normal bread, about three and a half cups. I said, give or take, you can make a big loaf for four cups. I said, that's perfect. This illustration will be great. Four cups of wheat is used to make one loaf of bread. Now, what is a denarius? A denarius is what a day laborer would make for one full day's work. So here's the picture. You work all day long, and you take all the money that you made today, and you go to Harris Teeter or Publix or Whole Foods. Whole Foods, you probably get like a muffin. You probably don't get a whole. So don't go there. You go to the grocery store, and you lay your money out, and they give you one loaf of bread. These are devastating economic conditions. We bought a Suburban back in like, I don't know what, right before we had our third kid. We drove up in a two-door Honda, and I had twins in the back of a two-door Honda. My wife was seven months pregnant, and I thought, this guy, if this guy can't sell me a Suburban, he's the worst salesman in the world. But we bought a Suburban when gas was like 325. And we went to the gas pump and filled up our brand new Suburban, which this guy did not fill up. He was, let me fill it up after I bought it. And I filled it up, and I filled it up for $99. I went, no wonder the Suburbans are so cheap. So here's this picture of God removing the economic restraint upon a culture. It is thought that this is 10 to, t- 10 to 12 times what this grain ought to be. In the book of Ezekiel, it refers to bread being measured by weight. And you don't, you don't ration out bread by weight. You know that, right? Because bre- everything to bread is just air, which shows you this picture of economic devastation happening. I remember when I was growing up and gas was 93 cents a gallon. Now what's gas? 250? Imagine gas being $25 a gallon. A gallon of milk is about four bucks now. Imagine a gallon of milk being $40. Imagine what you spend on your family to feed them and going to the grocery store. Multiply it by 10. And that's the economic devastation that is happening here. Now, there's, a pro- there's, there's progress in these things. If you begin to have political unrest, you have a trickle-down effect that happens in a community. Not only that, if you begin to have political unrest and now you add to that social unrest, now you're having economic conditions that are getting worse, right? Imagine a hurricane hitting and how hard it is to get food and just normal staples into that place. Think about countries that are affected by wars and how individuals have to stand in bread lines. And you're watching the restraint and God's common grace upon an economy slowly begin to be pulled back. But do you see the divine restraint that is in the judgment here? Do you see how the voice from the throne says, do not harm the oil and the wine? Wine is used for uh, purification of water in this day. Uh, Oil is used in the preparation of food. 
So that even in, as God pulls back his hand and allows economic, social, and political unrest to begin to simmer, that there's still preservation in the midst of it. The Psalms say, God, in wrath, remember mercy. And here's a picture of God's mercy in the midst of his judgment. Not only that, three quarts of barley for a Daenerys. Barley is what you feed to livestock. So you can get some food for your family, but it's got to be Alpo, Purina. That's the idea. It's the lowest quality food that you could get. And it's still devastating economically. Now let's look at verse 7. When he looked, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. You know, maybe as you look at this horse, watch this, verse 8. I looked and behold a pale horse. Uh, Pale isn't the best, uh, it serves its purpose here in this text. But pale is the word in the Greek, C-H-L-O-R-O. You ever heard of chlorophyll? You know what that is? Chlorophyll is what makes trees green. It allows photosynthesis to happen. It's this word here. Behold a pale horse. It's, it's meant to give you, it's used in the book of Revelation to talk about all the green grass and everything on the planet. So the picture here is the sickly pallor of death that characterizes life in a time of political, social, and economic upheaval. What happens? What happens in a time like this? I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It may be that this is a summing up of what happens in the midst of political, social, and economic devastation. That death now begins to be close at hand. This rider death goes forward and begins to uh, claim lives who are in the midst of this situation. Hades is the place of the unrighteous dead in the Bible. So that by the end of this book, you'll see death and Hades uh, will give up the dead that are in them and they will be judged. So death moves forward and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. A fourth of the earth. There's almost eight billion people on the planet. And during this time, as the wrath of God begins to be poured out, you see the loss of life of two billion people. They're given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword, that's military, to kill with famine, that's the previous horse, and with pestilence and with wild beasts. Pestilence is the same word that is translated death earlier in this verse. That you can imagine a situation where Countries are war-torn, devastated economically and socially. And the sickness that now would happen as a result of those things. And you may look at that wild beast and go, what is he talking about wild beasts? Are we talking about bears? Are we talking about large, wild animals, predators? Uh, you know, as I did some research on this, you know how the Black, the black Plague claimed to have uh, caused between 75 and 200 million deaths? You know how the Black Plague spread? It spread because of rats 
and flees on the rats. You know the deadliest animal alive right now? Kills about a million people a year. You know what it is? It's the mosquito. That it carries uh, West Nile and dengue fever. Just imagine the implications of God removing his hand of restraint upon the planet when it comes to politics, society, economics, and you have this situation right here. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply a text like Revelation chapter 6 that demonstrates God removing his divine restraint upon this planet. You know, this, the lamb here is totally sovereign over these conditions, right? That's the picture we have of the lamb, that this is not arbitrary, this is, ex- this is surgical and precise in terms of what the lamb is doing. He's releasing the restraint upon. You know, when you look at wrath in the New Testament, one of the places you go to look and to think about wrath is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 gives you a picture of a society that refuses to honor God. That it says, though they knew him as God, they did not honor him or give thanks. And it goes on to say that their foolish hearts were darkened. And all consistently throughout Romans chapter 1, you see God giving them over to where people who will not acknowledge God's eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1 says, having, cl- having been clearly seen through what has been made. When they will not honor him as God, God will say, you will have what you desire, and it's not me. Now, I talked, we began talking about this distinction, the way you look at life. You and I look at life a variety of ways. When you look at situations in your life that don't line up, uh, you may have a tendency to go, I think, one of two major ways. There's maybe some some, uh, overlap in these, but one way that you can look at this distinction between what is and what ought to be is you may fall into the temptation to believe that life is arbitrary. That things just sort of happen to me in my life. There's no, that God's up there, but he cares about spiritual things, not really particular and material things in my life. And situations at work or with my family or in, uh, you know, in my school or with my roommate or with my friends are really kind of arbitrary situations. They're not really spiritual things to think that much about. They're kind of just physical and material things. And if you have that perspective on life, you will go through life watching arbitrary things happen and your emotional, spiritual well-being will go up and down based upon the circumstances. You ever been there? Well, how was your week? It, this thing happened, and they hit me with their car, and now I had a terrible week, and life is awful. Well, next week, I got a raise this week, and man, life is better. But it's kind of just arbitrary that my, my inner conversation and dialogue is really dependent on things in life that just happens to me. And if you're that way, you'll be a constant worrier. You're never really sure if God's out there or he's in control or he's in charge or he loves you or these situations are kind of just random. And there's nobody really up there who's in control. 
Well, this text shows us that there's somebody who's sovereign and in control and has all authority in all places and all times and all seasons over every situation in a culture. Is that good news? Now, the other way that you can go through life, you can believe that life is arbitrary, but maybe you believe that life is fundamentally about achievement. And what you do is you go, all right, Steve, listen, I don't believe life happens to me. I believe I happen to life. And through my achievement and my conquest, I don't really care about things that are happening politically or socially or economically as long as I get mine. As long as I build my life and get my degrees and accomplish my plans and my vision and my dreams for my future, I believe, Steve, life isn't for worriers. Life is for workers. Because life is about achievement and what you can do and what you can bring to bear as a result of your own strength and ability. So on one hand, life is arbitrary. Nobody's in charge. The other side of things, it's you in charge. You believe you're strong enough to bring to fruition all the plans and purposes and blessings of your life because you're smart or you got a degree or you were born in the right family or you're financially independent, whatever it is, and you're going to face some situation in life that's going to unsettle you. You're going to face some situation in life where you're going to go face to face with the fact that you are not as strong as you think you are. That God will begin to remove restraint, to begin to unsettle you and cause a seed of doubt in you to go, maybe I can't do what I thought I could do. See, if you are on this side and life is arbitrary, you'll never be joyful. You'll never be hopeful. You're always worried and nervous that God has got something planned for you that's going to wreck you and ruin you. And, oh, well, that's good this week, but next week, uh, you're going to be Eeyore. Anybody remember Eeyore? It's a beautiful day outside. Yeah, but tomorrow it's going to be raining. Hmm. But if you're on this side and life is all about achievement and what you earn and what you accomplish, then you'll never be thankful because life is really about you and what you can accomplish. You got nobody to thank but you. So you can worry or you can work, but there is a third way. What if you go through life believing that the common grace of God impacts everything from politics to creation. What if you go through life and you believe that there's no situation in life that God doesn't have ultimate sovereign control and authority over? And not only that, that God loves you and God has a plan for you and God is strong enough and has the ability to order and direct your life. And when you are weak and when you are exposed and you realize I'm not as strong as I thought I was, that there's somebody who's actually in control, who's actually good and actually loves you. And not just the, the you on the outside, the you on the inside, you with me? Like who sees you and knows you for who you are, who you really are, who you don't want to talk about people. There's areas of your life that you're embarrassed and how could this God love me? And one of the things Revelation chapter six says that our lives are meant to be characterized. You know why you don't, uh, uh, you and I, I'll just tell you where I land. Let me, I'll just, I won't blame you. I'll blame me. I land on the achievement side, which makes me 
in times of weakness and walking in my flesh, prayerless. It makes me thankless. And it makes me always uncertain of whether or not God's in control and can work in my life because ultimately I believe my life rests on me. And it creates in me a thankless heart. It creates in me, yeah, yeah, let's pray about that, but I got work to do. I've got to accomplish these things over here. Yeah, prayer is good until you got to get to work, and now we got to get to work. That's where I land. Maybe you're, maybe you're on one other side. But the third way of living is the way of worship. Because if we believe that the lamb is in charge of everything from politics down to the pollen, the pollen, then now I begin to walk in life differently. I begin to be able to give thanks for circumstances in my life that don't seem to make sense. I can give thanks for circumstances where I don't know how this, remember this deviation of how it ought to be and how it is and now I'm disappointed. Now I can begin to rejoice how often? Always. That now, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, I can give thanks in every circumstances, that I can now walk in life being uncertain of how God is working it out here, but knowing of what he's done back here and what he's doing in the future, I can live wisely now. You with me? And that's what Revelation 6 shows us. It allows us to give thanks for the particulars in our life. Is there peace in your marriage right now? Give thanks to Jesus Christ for that. Do you have the ability to feed your family? Give thanks to Jesus Christ for that. Because there's coming a time when his restraint is removed. And we are called to live according to 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of life that we are to live. You know why you're prayerless? Because you're worshiping you. You believe in you. You're a, a youist. Is that a word? I don't know if it's a you. I don't know. I'm a meist. I'm a Stevist. I follow the religion of Steve and his power and glory and accomplishment. And this text shows us that he is in control from the, I like that, I'm gonna use that again, the politics to the pollen. And that we can trust him. And that we are invited in our spiritual lives not to worry and to go, woe is me. And not to believe that life rests on my own personal achievement and conquest, but to rest in the Lamb who loves me. To rest in the one who has control over all things, and to whom and through whom I can give thanks for all things that come into my life, that I can really rejoice always because he was slain to ransom people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, and that I'm safe in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need the truth of this passage. For us in the places in our life where we worry or we work too much, would you make us worshipers? Would you give us a greater appreciation and understanding of who you are and what you've done? Would you unsettle us? And Father, if there is someone here today who is worried and captured, I pray that they would know the person and work of Jesus and the goodness of who he is. For someone here today who's come to the end of themselves and has only found not strength but weakness, may they hear today that there was someone who has taken the penalty for their sin 
to the cross, has died, buried, and rose again to defeat uh, Satan, sin, and death for us. And Father in heaven, would you make us a worshiping people? Would we not rest uh, our hopes in our circumstances? Would we not rest our hopes in our personal strength? Would we put our hope alone in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us? Give us strength to walk these things out. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.